Hey friends, Darren here once again for another episode of That Drum Life Podcast. I really hope you got a great start to your week. I hope you're all doing well. I'm so happy to share this time with you. Okay, first things first. Peisty. It's pronounced Peisty. Not pasty, not paste. Peisty. All together now. Heisty. A whole bunch of years ago, I was at a party for a friend of mine in Santa Monica. Uh, struck up a conversation with one of his friends who had just graduated law school. He had passed the bar. And so we were talking about that. And my question to him was, okay, cool. What's next? Are you, uh, did you get a gig at a, at a law firm? Are you staying local? Are you moving? What's, what's next? And he looked at me a little confused and goes, well, I'm a lawyer now. And for some reason that stuck with me. It's like, okay, you've done all this work. You went to school, you passed all the exams, you passed the bar, you graduated and congratulations, you're a lawyer. So, all right, in the background, big neon sign, what's next? It's the same thing for musicians. You play drums, congratulations, you're a drummer. Now what? What's the next step? Is the next step teaching lessons? Is the next step being in a band? Uh, is the next step making drums? Is the next step continuing your musical education, going to music school? There are a lot of things you can do to kind of steer your career in the path that you think is the right one for you. And I want to stress this. Your opportunities will come from the most unlikeliest of places sometimes. And sometimes the path that you've been on will come to an abrupt halt for some reason that you did not see coming at all. Now, I took the music school route, and when I graduated high school in Texas, uh, I did kind of a tour of the music schools around Texas. I went to UNT, I went to UT, I uh, went to A&M, and the one that struck me most as home was Baylor. And it's because I met the professor there. I came in on a Sunday, and he just happened to be there. He gave me a full tour of the music facilities and, uh, you know, really made me feel like I could, I could be there. <laughs> I could really discover who I was as a musician uh, under his uh, under his care. Now Baylor's in Waco, Texas, and um, Waco was about the size of my hometown, so it wasn't all that different. It wasn't a big shock, you know, moving to the big city or you know a little small town or anything like that. So it was on the level of what I was used to growing up. So that was a big plus. And I had one main professor through that whole time. His name was Dr. Larry Van Landingham, Dr. V. You know, for those of us who are just in a hurry all the time. Now, Dr. V had been around for a long time. He had seen every kind of student, every type of learner, and he knew early on, even before I did, what type of learner I was. He would give me a goal to achieve, and he would say, get there. He knew the importance of making mistakes on your own along the way so that you could learn from them and more refine your path. So the next goal would be that much easier to get to. The next goal after that would be that much easier to get to as well. And there really wasn't all that much talk about a career after college. I was in the music education program and it was just kind of a kind of a given that you would go directly into music education after you graduated. And really, even though I loved teaching, I loved teaching private lessons and I loved teaching in the classroom setting, 
really all I wanted to do is play drum set and be in a rock band, even though really all of my background was in orchestral and solo percussion. So during that time in Waco, I had played for pretty much every local band that was around. In my last two years there, I played in a band called Ninth and Wood, and we would play everywhere. We played everywhere around Waco. We would play fraternity parties and sorority parties at uh, different colleges all through Texas and Louisiana. And it was a great gig because you'd have your week's worth of classes. And then on the weekends, we would throw everything in the van and take off and go play some gigs somewhere. It was wonderful. So we all graduated at the same time and we did what every great band does. We broke up and we all went our separate ways. So my next step after that was loading up the truck, moving out to California, and starting graduate school. Now, during that summer, I had met a band called Jetpack, and it was a surf rock band. I'd never played surf rock before. Well, from the middle of Texas, right? There's no surfing in the middle of Texas. And my very first gig in Los Angeles was at the Roxy. That's right, the world-famous Roxy on Sunset. That was my very first gig. And fast forward a bunch of years, I ended up marrying the guitar player from that band. So, hey, that one worked out. Jetpack the band eventually broke up. And by this time, I was well into my master's studies at CalArts. I was also teaching undergraduate timpani lessons and indoor percussion and drumline at, uh, at two different high schools in the area. Now, I met another drummer in a group called the Procrastinators. And that group was very much like Stomp. They played on bar stools and water jugs and pots and pans and five-gallon buckets and stuff. It was very much a recycled percussion, trash percussion kind of group. It was very drum core heavy, so the chops were just kind of insane. And I went through the whole drum core experience, and so I had some of those chops left. You know, chops that you don't really use playing triangle in, you know, a percussion group. Yeah. The procrastinators would fly around and play lots of state fairs, and it would be a, you know, a week-long affair. One of those fairs that we played was the Missouri State Fair in Sedalia, Missouri. And they would have some big-name artists come in for a nightly concert. One of those artists that came through was Nickelback. And who opened for him? Earshot. Now, I love both of those bands even to this day. And don't even get me started on the whole Nickelback thing. There are way more bands out there that are a billion times more hateable than Nickelback. And Nickelback puts on a great show. So little did I know that years later, fate would kind of steer me in the direction to audition for Earshot. And that opportunity seemed to come out of nowhere. But as you go, if you trace where those opportunities may have come from, uh, I had to be in a completely unrelated thing to have that opportunity come. And here's how. I was playing in two main bands at the time. One was a pretty much LA-only band called Mouth to Mouth, and the other was a rock and espanol band called Hijos del Sol. And we would play everywhere around LA, and then we would fly to Mexico and do a little tour around there. After one of those tours, I'd flown back to LA uh, in an afternoon. That night, there was a gig with the other band, Mouth to Mouth, at 14 Below in Santa Monica, for those of you that remember that place. And one of the people in the crowd was the guitar player for Earshot. And he came up after the show to introduce himself, and we geeked out a little bit about rock music and everything, and I told him how much I loved Earshot and had been a fan for a long time and had the records and loved the songs. And he said, you know, we're in between drummers right now. I'm like, oh, cool. I'm your man. <laughs> call me. Let me know when I can come and audition. So long story short, I got the call. I got the audition. Nailed it. Got the gig. And I was just just completely over the moon. I thought with every fiber of my being, I had made it. This was the big time now. 
I was in a huge touring band and we were having rehearsals and and I was playing all these songs that I had loved and I was really just trying really, really hard not to screw them all up, you know, with my own BS. And if there's one thing I want to stress to you, if you're a professional musician or becoming a professional musician, you're going to make it many times. And each time you're going to feel like you're at the top. Now, it was because of Jetpack, it was because of the procrastinators, it was because of mouth-to-mouth and earshot that I had the other opportunities come, and not in a way that I thought were going to arrive. Now, the short version of all this, in my experience, is that it's who you know that gets you the gig, but it's what you know that keeps you the gig. And for me, that continues to be true no matter what situation I'm in. So along with everything else in your life, you have to make time to go to shows, to meet people, to network. You never know who knows who, really. And it's not uncommon that a chance meeting with somebody will eventually become an open door to an amazing opportunity. All right, so that first part was a little bit of an evolution in my career, but let's talk about the evolution in the gear, (laughs) right? My favorite part. My first real drum set was an MX-1000 kit by CB700. It was a beautiful black kit with uh, standard sizes, 22, 12, 13, 16, and it had a chrome over steel snare to go with it. Now, I had that kit all the way through high school and then up through my first semester at college. Now, at the time, I said before I was in the music education program, but there's a lot of playing that goes on in the music education program. So I needed something that's a little more reliable, a little more pro of a drum set. One of the graduate students was selling a Butcher Block Ludwig kit in the same sizes, 22, 12, 13, 16, and I bought it. Now, you would think that I would have kept it as Butcher Block and, uh, you know, as uh, true to vintage as possible. Um, Yeah, that didn't work out. So I stripped the wrap off and stained the whole thing green because I was a giant idiot and it seemed like a good idea at the time. And that kit was my go-to kit for everything. Eventually, over the years, I had added some more pieces. I'd found an 18-inch floor tom and a 20-inch floor tom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Ludwig had 20-inch floor toms. I also found a 24-inch bass so I could kind of piece together whatever kit that I, you know, that I wanted. When I first got the gig with Earshot, I needed something else because I didn't want to take my baby that Ludwig kit on tour. So I added over to Craigslist, as you do, and I found a DW kit that was in the chrome finish ply, chrome hardware and chrome wrap, and the whole thing just shined like the sun. It was crazy. It was an awesome kit, and it was a 24, 13, 16, 18, and that was my kit for Earshot. I used that kit for about two years until we were playing a gig in Florida, and I met some of the guys at D-Drum. They brought me on as an artist, and I played D-drum drums for a while. Then those same guys moved over and started Crush Drums of Percussion. So I became a Crush artist for a while. And my first kit over there was a Birch Chameleon kit. And it it was a great kit, but it really just didn't hit me. And I really have yet to find a Birch kit that just really resonates with the, you know, the sound that I have in my head for what drums should sound like. So the next kit after that was a Crush Chameleon Ash, and it was in the black satin with the red lug inserts. The kit just looked mean, and it sounded amazing. I loved that kit. 
And fun fact, I still have it. It's in the next room, actually. And that's the kit that I started playing with Hollywood Undead on. And I built a kind of a Blooming Onion, Dead Spider-looking rack system, and um, then eventually moved over to become a DW artist. Same kind of kit, same sizes, uh, all in satin black, because, hey, black's my favorite color. DW pedals, Gibraltar racks, and Sabian cymbals. One of the kits I use here in my studio is my Roland VAD506 kit. And uh, I have two hi-hats on it, and one of the clutches is the original CB700 clutch that I had from the very beginning. It's a nice touch, and I really kind of like having it there. It's a good reminder of where I started and where my instruments started. So the very first That Drum Live podcast was about my first instrument. And I got a message here from Quentin. Uh, it's a wonderful story. I wanted to share it with you. So here we go. Quentin says, my first drum set. Well, it wasn't a set, actually. It was me at 10 years of age, sitting on the corner of my bed with the cardboard tubes removed from pants hangers, watching pirated MTV and air drumming. I grew up without much. We were evicted from the occasional apartment when we fell behind on rent. No way we could afford a drum set. I recorded Hours upon hours of MTV footage of old Def Leppard, Van Halen, Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, Iron Maiden, etc. I would emulate the shots of the drummer in the music videos and concert footage. Financially, things were a little better by the time I started middle school at age 12. I knew if I joined the school band, I could try out for percussion. Everyone wanted to do percussion. No kid really wants to play tuba. Most of us want to drum. And hey, this is Darren talking. That's absolutely true. <laughs> when I was able to audition for a middle school band, this was seventh grade. There wasn't middle school band before then. When I auditioned, everyone kind of knew me already coming in. So they knew I was going to be a drummer. But following the rules, I had to choose another instrument and I had to audition on another instrument. So I picked the trumpet and I was terrible at it. And I picked up the trumpet and I remember just making the most god-awful squeak out of the horn that I could possibly make. And then, yeah, the band director stopped me. He's like, all right, yeah, you're in percussion. All right, back to Quentin's story. No kid really wants to play tuba. Most of us want to drum. Those years of air drumming paid off. My first band teacher, Mr. Lundy, chose three of us to be in the percussion section. I was so pumped. That day, after school, my mom took me to a music store in Tulsa, Oklahoma to rent a snare drum and a set of bells. The snare drum was a 14x6 CB700 International with an internal dampener. It came with a molded plastic case, also containing a flimsy stand and a rubber pad, and sticks! I finally had sticks! Most of my birthdays and Christmas gifts up to that point were secondhand clothes and books. I asked for drumsticks a couple of times, but my mom was reluctant because she thought I would ruin what furniture we had with them since we couldn't afford a drum set. So, my quasi-air drumming game just got upped. Now I was owning two and four with my snare drum between my legs as I sat on the edge of my bed watching concert footage. Later that year, I got a job running lights and sound for a newly planted church that was using my school's auditorium on Sunday mornings for their service. I got up every Sunday around 6 a.m. and rode a bike a little over seven miles to my school to earn $35 for the morning. I told my mom and my grandparents that I only wanted cash for Christmas and my birthday. A year later, I was taking private lessons in addition to school band. Christmas was approaching. I had enough cash to almost afford the drum set that I had been eyeing in the catalogs and brochures I collected from music stores over two years. 
My first real drum set was a five-piece pearl export in wine red. Wine red was the color option number 66. I know this because I memorized all the sales materials I brought home from music stores in order to do my research. I'll never forget that day. It was November. My mom called the school and told them I was sick. She took me to work with her. On her lunch break, we went to Drum Central in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I bought that set of pearls on layaway with that fat wad of cash I had earned and kept hidden under my bed. I remember walking out of Drum Central and looking through the window at that red set that now had a cardboard sign hanging on it. Layaway, Quentin. I stared until mom finally said her lunch break was almost over. My mom, aka Mrs. Claus, would pay the layaway balance of about $100 for my Christmas gift. Mr. Lundy allowed me to check out a set of hi-hats and a ride from the school. I used a folding kitchen chair for my throne. That's still one of the best Christmases ever. A year later, after getting a throne and a crash, I started my garage band, my first of many bands. All right, kids, this is the good part. Quentin says, I still have that set. It'll be 30 years old this Christmas. Years ago, I converted it to an electric kit by installing mesh heads and triggers. If I were ever in a difficult financial situation and had to sell any of my gear, I'd sell my other higher-end sets first. I can't hope to recreate the magic of getting my first kit. (laughs) Yeah, Quentin. Oh, that's amazing. I love the story. My first drum set. Hey, friends, I want to hear more about it. I want to hear more about your first drum sets. Email me at darren at thatdrumlife.com. That's Darren with one R, D-A-R-E-N, at thatdrumlife.com. Go to the contact page. Tell me all about your first drum set. If not your first drum set, you can tell me how you've made it. How many times have you made it? What was the one time where you thought, oh, this is it. I've reached the top. Tell me all about it. Darren at thatdrumlife.com. Friends, join me next week on That Drum Life Podcast. We'll get back to some artist interviews. I can't wait to tell you who's up next. It's going to be great. Stay tuned. Until then, be safe. Take care of yourself. Take care of one another. And thanks for joining me once again for That Drum Life Podcast. That Drum Life Podcast is brought to you by Pfeiffer Drum Co. and the Association of Drummers Association. Interested in an ad spot? Who isn't? Reach out to me at Darren at That Drum Life Podcast. That's Darren with one R, D-A-R-E-N, at That Drum Life Podcast. Dot com.